Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. I'm totally out of breath from sprinting from next door. So there's that. Kids Church is going, and it's so fun. And I can't wait to go. Oh, that's my alarm. We need to go to table time now. Stop. Okay, so I'll make this real quick. We don't have a ton to announce. In fact, nothing except keep coming to church and keep filling out your online communication card. That's it. Have a great morning. So loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But the world so hated God that it sinned against him. If you do not turn from your sins, you will die. It's that simple. You either turn or you burn. If you do not repent, you will be cast into the lake of fire and you will burn there forever. This is what you call love speech. We're telling the truth here. Jesus Christ will come back and judge all of us. If we die separated from God in this life, we will be separated for eternity. Think of the worst horror movie you have ever seen. We're gonna go to a drive-through right now and demonstrate that you can hand out gospel tracts and drive-through windows. So fast food restaurants, if you're making a coffee stop. Okay, so we're just gonna take our stuff, and we're gonna pay for it, we'll try to hand out one of these. Sometimes, usually they take them, sometimes they don't. Starbucks is a great place because you can probably assume that if you work at Starbucks, you're not a believer. That's just, that's just the way it goes, it's the nature of it. Going, sir. Would you like a gospel track today? Sorry. Gospel track today to save you from your sins. Oh yeah. You think you're a good person? Sorry. Do you think you're a good person? I guess. Yeah. The Bible says no one's good, right? No, thank you. No. Take care, boys. Take care of your soul, sir. Would you like a gospel track today to save you from your sins. How's it going, sir? Would you like a gospel track? No one's good. That's the problem. at Starbucks. <laughs> hey, uh, I, I want to start by asking you guys to do a little heart assessment, and I want you to gauge your emotions around a particular word picture. I'm going to say a sentence, and I want you to monitor your emotional response. You guys ready for this? Okay, take a deep breath. Let it out. Here's the sentence. Go preach the gospel to the lost. Let me say that again. Go preach the gospel to the lost. From the time of Jesus till now, those words have meant very different things to different people. And it has depended greatly upon 
the time period. It has depended upon the spirit of the church and then the culture that it has wished to engage. And at times there has been great beauty and at other times there has been great damage. I recently came across a fascinating story that, that turns out to be kind of a mix of both, which is not all that uncommon. Prior to the European settlement of New Zealand, the Maori people, who were the indigenous people of New Zealand, they had no experience with Europeans, European culture, or Christianity. Uh, but Jay Rucka, who is a modern-day Christian and a part of the Maori people, tells the story of how his people were introduced to Jesus. It is, it is beautiful and tragic and exceedingly complex. Um, prior to the Europeans discovering New Zealand in 1769, there was a famous Maori prophet who had a, a vision of strange people with white skin coming on large ships. And it was so vivid that he went around from tribe to tribe to tell them. And he made a basket and put it on his head to mimic a hat. And he cut part of a cloak and he put it around his legs to mimic pants. And he fastened a rock to a stick and put it in his mouth to mimic a pipe. And he brought this message to the Maori tribes. The name of their god will be Tom E. Rorkutia, which translated means the son who was killed. A good god. However the people will still be oppressed. Now, sometime after this Maori prophecy, James Cook, okay, British explorer, you know, like a New Zealand's version of Christopher Columbus, made landfall in the, on the island in 1769 and just had a quick touchdown and then left. 48 years later, the first missionary arrived in New Zealand. But by then, the Maori had been waiting for decades with anticipation to hear the message about this new God who was the son who was killed. So the tribal chiefs gathered a large crowd on the beach to listen to this missionary. And on Christmas Day, 1814, the first missionary stood up on that soil to preach the gospel of Jesus, the son who was killed. And to say that it was well-received by the Maori people is like a gross understatement. They, they renamed the beach the gateway for the good news in their language. And the missionaries translated first, they translated the Gospel of Luke and then later the New Testament as a whole into the Maori language. And, and then the, the Gospel of Luke spread like wildfire through the tribes among the, the Maori people. Now, prior to the Gospel, they were a warring culture built around blood vengeance. The culture was you, you kill one of us, we kill one of you, and it went back and forth and back and forth, and you never knew when the next raiding party was coming. And they didn't just kill men, they killed women and children. And the Maori were, for the most part, cannibals. But the good news of the Prince of Peace, of loving your enemies and dying for them, it transformed the Maori people forever. Here are words from a Maori tribal chief from 1870. It was only after the word of God was preached that the evil deeds and life of olden times was seen that these were condemned, murdering, family quarrels, seduction, and cannibalism. But the gospel being preached caused the evils of Maori to cease. Almost everywhere the European missionaries arrived, 
to their surprise, the indigenous people had already taken the gospel of Luke. They had even established new Maori churches. Like before they even got started, these European missionaries were out of a job. Uh, and it's just a few short years, over half the Maori population was following Jesus. Some formed new Christian villages that combined the best technology and farming techniques that they were learning from the Europeans, and then also intentional Christian community, which was firmly based on the teachings of Jesus, but contextualized to Maori culture. Tragically, as you can imagine, that was not the end of the story. In time, the European settlers began to oppress the indigenous people. Now, back in England, William Wilberforce advocated for human rights, but in the end, the missionaries were forced to take sides, to choose between the colonialism of England and the spiritual flourishing of the Maori people, and far too many chose the former. And it sabotaged one of the greatest movements of God in recent history. What started as inviting people to know Jesus turned into subjugation. So let me, let me come back to the statement I made earlier. Go preach the gospel to the lost. What happens in you emotionally when you hear that? Here's my guess. For many of you, that is an emotionally loaded idea. The truth is that most of us have come of age in a secular culture where moral relativism has penetrated deep into the soul of our culture. Ideas like speak your truth and you do you and who am I to judge, they're not only cliches, but they are deeply held values. We, we live in a world, get this, we live in a world where it now feels, it feels immoral to preach the gospel of Jesus. Due to horrific examples of evangelism combined with colonialism or evangelism mixed with hate and anger and judgment, preaching Jesus feels like it is at odds with the highest moral value of our culture, which is tolerance, right? And this is deeply sad to me because the way of Jesus is the way of invitation. The way of Jesus is not about force or aggression or domination. Yet using the name of Jesus, many have been violent and aggressive. Many have been condescending and judgmental and not like Jesus at all. But I call into question whether our culture actually values tolerance. Does it really? Because while religious values can be dismissed quickly in public arenas, all around us, people are preaching other gospels very aggressively. There's the gospel of upward mobility or materialism. There's the gospel of careerism or science or sexuality. There's the gospel of the political right or the political left or of postmodern gender theory and on and on and on. And people are not just preaching these gospels to, to make converts, to generate converts. They're actually working feverishly to legislate them in Olympia and D.C., and are not afraid to shove them down the throat of any who resist. And they will use whatever tactics they can find, shame, fear, legal decree, whatever it takes to push their gospels forward in our culture. And with the gospel of tolerance 
has surprisingly simultaneously emerged something called cancel culture. Those two have emerged together. And so I wonder, do those preaching the gospel of tolerance practice what they preach? With tolerance being the ultimate value in our culture, you guys, how's it working out? Are people becoming more kind and connected and loving? Is, is there deeper and deeper community just arising all around us? Like, does tolerance by itself lead to human flourishing? That, that's a rabbit trail that I could go down for hours. I'm tempted to just kind of go off on that. I won't. It's not the main point for today. I will resist. I, I just want us to notice that in our culture, there are many Gospels. Christians are not the only ones preaching. Yes? Yes. Okay, still, we are very weary of, of being unkind or intolerant, right? We are. And we're, we're concerned about being disrespectful in how we talk about our faith, and we should be. Because many of you have seen forms of evangelism that make you want to throw up. Others of you have personally participated in some of that stuff. This is a part of your experience in a particular church or whatever. You've developed a kind of aversion to the word evangelism. Like, like you hear the word and the word itself causes you to start to feel nauseous. Years ago, um, <clears throat> I used to love meatball sandwiches <laughs> from Subway. It's kind of like my go-to. Does anybody else go to have their go-to meatball subs? No? Oh, okay. I don't think there's any, you know, not usually believers working at Subway either, I guess. I so I, I used to go to Subway all the time and get meatball sandwiches. And, and one day, I ate one, and then not long after, I, I had horrific food poisoning. So I was violently sick, actually, for like three or four days. It was absolutely, I won't describe it, but it was awful. And for years later, the sight or, or smell or even thought of meatball subs made me sick. Now, okay, in all fairness to Subway, uh, it wasn't their meatball sub that made me sick. I was at a barbecue earlier in the day and I ate like undercooked brats. Don't eat undercooked brats. <laughs> and I know that that was the source of it because several of us from that barbecue got violently sick. But in between the brats and the sickness, I went to Subway, and so my body connected all of this to the meatball sub, because when I puked my guts out, what is it that came out? <laughs> okay, so, so I, I developed this physical and psychological aversion to meatball subs. And you guys, it is actually stunning how quickly our bodies do this. It's like this protective thing. Something makes us sick and it, doesn't nev it never sounds good again. But you, you just like, you have one bad experience with food and it's just like, bam, you know, aversion. So here's what, what I'm saying. I think that many of us have like evangelism aversion. We, we tried or watched something that went wrong and, and now we're, we're kind of traumatized from it. And so we, we get sick just thinking about it. And so, we prefer to just kind of put our, put our head down and, and follow Jesus in, in private but not in public. Or maybe we're bold enough to like throw something out on Instagram. 
uh, but not really ever say anything to anybody in person. Or maybe, maybe what we do is we go and we, we mow our neighbor's lawn and just hope that somehow by that act, they figure out that Jesus is Lord of the universe. <laughs> like, do you guys, do you feel what I'm talking about? I feel it myself all the time. So seriously, I just want to say no judgment. Because guess what? You are not alone if you feel that. Not only do many other followers of Jesus feel that way, and not only do I feel that way as a pastor on a regular basis, but Jesus was no stranger to that feeling either. Because he was surrounded by bad examples of evangelism, even in his day. I mean, listen to his stinging critique of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. You guys, Jesus said that. Not some angsty, like, millennial Instagrammer who's deconstructing their faith while garnering likes and trying to gain a following. Jesus felt that way about some of the evangelism in his own day. And yet, all four Gospels end with a call from Jesus to his disciples to share the Gospel. And there are the famous words that conclude the Gospel of Matthew. These are the final words in the Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here's the version from the Gospel of Mark. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. Or how about Luke's version? Now Luke's is kind of interesting because Luke is actually like a two-volume work. Right? Like, there's the Gospel of Luke, which is part one, and then there's part two, which is what? Acts, the book of Acts. Okay, so in Acts, the final scene of Jesus with the disciples is these famous words. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, Verse 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Right? Like that is four different ways of saying the exact same thing. It is, go preach the gospel to the lost. You guys, all around us are people just as lost as the Maori were. Let me pause right here. I'm guessing I'm guessing that some of you just cringed at my use of the word lost. I mean, it, f it feels derogatory, right? I don't think that Jesus intended it to be. And by the way, it's Jesus' word, not mine. Uh, I want to share with you something that I, I, I find thought-provoking. A guy named David Foster Wallace was an award-winning American author. He was a professor of English and a cultural critic. And in 2008, at the age of 46, he tragically committed suicide. 
But prior to his heartbreaking end, he wrote about what he was feeling in the world. And I think this is, this is interesting. He says, there's something particularly sad about it. Something that doesn't have much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. It's more like a stomach-level sadness. I see it in myself and my friends in different ways. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. The sadness is a real American type of sadness. I was white, upper middle class, obscenely well-educated, and had, had way more career success than I could have legitimately hoped for and was sort of adrift. A lot of my friends were the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs. Others were unbelievable workaholics. Some were going to singles bars every night. You could see it played out 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. I got the feeling that a lot of us privileged Americans, as we enter our early 30s, have to find a way to put away childish things and confront stuff about spirituality. Now notice his word choice. What did he feel? A kind of lostness. That's the word used by Jesus for people who are far from God. And actually, I think it's intended to be a very dignifying word. Lost people are not not necessarily stupid or dumb. They're certainly, they're certainly not, uh, by definition, even bad or immoral, right? They're just lost. On my own journey, I have felt almost verbatim what Wallace described. I, I came to Jesus. Those of you that know me know my story. I came to Jesus in my early 20s. And prior to that, I felt lost. There was anxiety and sadness and emptiness, and all of my friends were coping with the same kind of feelings. Some tried academic success. Some tried making a lot of money. Some tried hitting up the bars and having a lot of sex. Some tried climbing up the corporate ladder. And, and one, of the, one of the strange things Wallace was saying is that you can, like, you, can, you can achieve the dream. Like, you can have a lot of success, and yet, at the end of it all, find that there is still this inextinguishable ache. This sense that, that you know what, despite all of that, all is not as it should be. This feeling that I'm, I'm still not really home. And Jesus' word for people far from God wasn't stupid or, or even evil, it was just lost. In a conversation with a wealthy tax collector named Zacchaeus, Jesus tenderly explained that he had come to seek and save the lost. But here's the kicker. How does Jesus do that today? Well, he does it through you and through me, through his body, through his hands and his feet, through us sharing the gospel of Jesus. I mean, if you think about it, if, if, you're, if you're here or like if you're watching online and, and, and you're a follower of Jesus, that only happened because somebody was courageous enough to share the gospel with you. Your mom or your dad or a family member or a friend in high school or college or a pastor from a church or a Christian intellectual or a writer or a, even a Christian celebrity on Instagram. How, however it came about, if you are now following Jesus, somewhere, somehow, someone shared the gospel with you. You know, I'm, I'm here because a whole string of courageous people, 
shared the gospel with me. It started with, with a Young Life leader named Dave. And then the wife of my college baseball coach, a courageous and very loving woman named Pat, and then a co-worker later on named Don. You guys, I was so opposed to God that it took three different people to break through. <laughs> but, it, but if you're someone that knows Jesus and, and follows him, it's because someone somewhere loved you enough and was courageous enough to share the gospel with you. And really, when you think about it, sharing the gospel should come natural to us. Why? Well, because the word gospel simply means good news. And as human beings, sharing good news is natural. In any other realm, it's natural. We, when we hear good news, like truly good news, we can't wait to tell people about it. Like, I found this great new show on Netflix you got to check it out. Watch with me. We'll talk about it. Queen's Gambit, right, Alicia? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, you're not going to believe this, but I found this great new place to work out. It's called CrossFit. <laughs> Come join my cult with me, right? Or you know what, they've, man, you wouldn't believe it, I was going to they have a great deal going right now at Costco on, you just fill in the blank. Like you see that stuff and then you, you meet up with people that you actually care about and you want them to, hear, to know the good news, you want them to hear about it, right? We can't help but share whatever it is that we're excited about in any other realm. Whatever it is that we think is good news. Now Jesus in Luke 4 said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. I must. And you could interpret that and read it as if it's like duty-based, like, well, you know, I must. It's the right thing to do. Or you could interpret it like, I must. Like, I, I can't help but spread the good news of the kingdom. And I believe that there's like a unique opportunity in our culture right now to share the gospel. Because as the numerous non-Jesus-centered gospels, and there are many, are fracturing and failing, some are discovering that, you know what? Human rights and freedom and money and the ability to have sex with whoever you want is not actually enough to lead a deeply meaningful life. And, and some of our secular neighbors or coworkers or friends or family members who were closed off in previous moments are becoming more open right now to a different gospel because they've tried the gospels of our culture. They are open now to another narrative about what's good and what's beautiful and what's true. So from now until kind of the, like the end of November, we're just going to think together. How can we engage our culture with the gospel of Jesus? How can we share the good news of Jesus with people we love? But before we even dare think at all about how to share it, we really need to take a step back and ask, what is it? Like, what is the gospel? Our view of what it is actually, I think, will, will deeply impact how we go about sharing it. Now, many of us, like some of you right in here, like, really, you're gonna, right now you're going to teach me the gospel. I know the gospel, pastor. 
Okay. I think for many of us, we, we think we know the gospel, but do we? Okay, imagine something with me. If I, if I just grabbed this mic right now and walked around the room and I just shoved it in the face of 10 different people at random and I said, hey, articulate the gospel for me, go. I won't do that. Uh, some of you are like, well, that's, I'm out of here. I, I felt like I had to pee the whole time. I, I sure do. <laughs> okay, now, if I were to do that, um, what do you think we would hear? I imagine that we'd likely hear a ton of common denominators, right? But we would also hear a lot of differences. Responses would vary based on your previous church experience or what books you've read or not read or who you follow on social media or maybe even how long you've been around Brookview. So where do we start in trying to form a working definition of the gospel? Well, that's, that's actually an easy answer, I think. I think we start with Jesus himself. We should start by asking, well, what was the gospel that Jesus himself preached? Because guys, if, you, if we do not start with the gospel that Jesus preached, it's very likely we will end up with a gospel that Jesus did not preach. Just throwing that out there. And I actually think that that's what's happened in much of American Christianity. That's a sneak preview. We're going to dive into all of that uh, next week. It's going to be good. Yeah, okay. But to figure out what Jesus preached, where would we go in the Bible? What, What four books would we go to in the Bible, do you think? The Gospels. Interesting. The four books in, in the Bible that detail what Jesus said and did, and they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these books are all named after the, the author of the book. But did you know that there's an additional title that is added to each of them? In Greek, the rest of the title is euangelion kata, which can can be translated the gospel of or the gospel according to. So it's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It is the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. Now, Bible scholar Scott McKnight points out something that I find simple and yet ridiculously profound. Here it is. Here's what he says. He says, the Gospels are the Gospel. I know, you guys, this is why I get the big bucks. (laughs) It's just to point out, you know, really difficult stuff like this. You guys, the Gospels are the Gospel. Meaning that the entire book of Matthew or book of Mark, or any of the four. The entire book is the gospel. From chapter one, verse one to the end. So it's not just one little part in the middle or when you get three quarters of the way through or kind of a summary statement at the end. All of it is the gospel. Now this is simple, but the ramifications of that are actually huge. It means that the gospel is likely much bigger and deeper and longer than many of us were led to believe. It means that our various 30-second versions of the gospel that we've been trained or, or memorized, while they may very well contain bits of the gospel, they're often too simplified and only represent a fraction 
of the thing. And that means that if our rehearsed, memorized, pre-programmed 30-second presentations of the gospel aren't compelling people, it may not actually be that they're not open to Jesus or that the gospel isn't now suddenly uh, is, is unable to penetrate our generation. It may simply be that we're not actually giving them the whole gospel. Now, that said, while the gospel is not a, a little tiny part of the gospels, we do, on occasion, in the gospels, get summarized glimpses of it. And here's what's fascinating. The summaries in Scripture don't sound anything like the gospel that many of us have been trained and taught. In Mark 1, we get, we get one of these summaries, okay? There's only a few in all of, uh, of, of the gospels, but here's, here's one of the summaries. Check it out. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. He's getting right into it right away. It says, After John, okay, as in John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, okay, the gospel of God. And here it is. Here's Mark's one verse, one sentence summary. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Guys, this is Mark's summary of the entire gospel message of Jesus. Can we be honest? For many of us, this is a far cry from the version of the gospel that we were taught. For many of you if, you, if you had to summarize the gospel, like if I actually did grab a mic and shove it in front of your face and say, okay, give me the, you know, the most condensed, quickest version of this, you can get, you'd, it would probably, for many of you, it would sound something like this. We're all sinners, but Jesus came to die for us so we can go to heaven when we die. Now, think about that. That sounds nothing like Mark's summary. Now, I'm not saying that that idea isn't true. I'm not saying that idea is not represented in Scripture. I'm just pointing out that when Mark summarizes the gospel, it actually looks very different from that. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. According to Mark... This is a summary of the gospel that Jesus actually preached. Like he traveled around preaching everywhere and he preached a whole lot of stuff. And this is the summary of it. And so to kick off this series as we launch into this thing, I just want to take a few minutes and kind of break down this gospel, Mark's gospel, because I'm pretty sure that it's like super biblical. So let's, let's start with the words good news. In Greek, that's actually one word. There's one Greek word, and it's euangelion. Can you guys say that with me? Euangelion. It just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and it's where we get English words like evangelism or evangelical. But here's something kind of unexpected. In the first century, it was not used in a religious context. At all. It wasn't, it wasn't people like me that did evangelism or euangelion. It was actually political people that worked for the government. It wasn't in the religion, it wasn't used in the religious realm. It was, it was used in the political realm. So let me give you an example of how this worked. 
Um, In 44 BC, a few decades before Jesus, Roman Emperor Julius Caesar was assassinated. Okay, his death cast the empire into civil war, and there was a long conflict between Caesar's best friend, Mark Antony, and his adopted nephew, Octavian, and it lasted 13 years. But eventually, Octavian took control of the empire, and the civil war ended, and peace was ushered in. Octavian renamed himself. Anybody know? What? Yes, say it with confidence. Good job, Alex. Octavian renamed himself Augustus, and he became known as Caesar Augustus. Okay? And he was called Lord by the Romans, Lord and Savior and Prince of Peace. And it was claimed that he was divine, that he was the Son of God. One ancient uh, inscription discovered by archaeologists reads, The birthday of the god Caesar Augustus was the beginning for the world of the euangelion, the glad tidings that have come to men through him. And and ancient descriptions, inscriptions like like the one about Caesar, have been found all over the Mediterranean. They, They were a kind of imperial propaganda to the masses. The new emperor, Augustus, sent out messengers. When he had won the Civil War, he sent out messengers or evangelists to the farthest reaches of the empire to spread his euangelion. That Octavian has defeated the rebels and ended the Civil War. He is the son of God. He is here to deliver us and usher in a new era of peace. And any remaining rebels in the empire weren't killed. That would have been too hard. They didn't want to kill them. They wanted to convert them. So they were invited to participate in the new kingdom to repent and believe the good news. And what I want you to see is that Euangelion in the ancient world was actually a royal announcement about a king and a kingdom. And that leads us to the next idea in Mark's summary. Jesus says that the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Well, what in the world does that mean? God's kingdom? I mean, it sounds very odd to those of us who have only ever lived in a democracy. I mean, we we don't think of the world in terms of kings and kingdoms. For us, the crown is just a show on Netflix, Right? We have no practical experience with kings and, and kingdoms. It's just like Prince Harry with his scruffy red hair on Oprah. <laughs> right? Cool. But, but when you think about it in its most basic form, like what is a kingdom? Well, it is just the range or the sphere in which a king rules or has dominion. What makes a king a king? Well, it's authority over something, Right? Like Pharaoh had a kingdom, and Caesar had a kingdom, a territory and a people that fell under his authority. People who participate in the reign of that monarch by following his decrees, whether they're forced by subjugation or of their own free will. This is a human kingdom. And in Jesus' day, people knew all about it. Now, in a similar way, the kingdom of God is where the will of God is done. It consists of those willing to live under God's authority. God doesn't rule by force or by subjugation. He simply extends an invitation. 
And those that choose him as king can then participate in his kingdom, in his way, his government, his leadership, because it's on offer. And anyone at all who chooses to do so can participate. And Jesus insisted that the kingdom of God is not just about the future. I mean, think about his language. The kingdom of God has come near. Another way to say that is the kingdom of God has arrived. I like this simple explanation of John Ortberg. He said, Jesus' good news, his gospel, is simply this. The kingdom of God has now, through Jesus, become available for ordinary human beings to live in. The kingdom of God is available now. Life with God on earth is available for ordinary people. The presence of God, life of God, it's here and it's available now. The good news of Jesus isn't just that a kingdom is coming one day. The the euangelion, the good news, the gospel is the kingdom is available now and it is available to anyone, anyone at all. Now, if you're confused by that, you should know the people of Jesus' day were just as confused. Because they were like, well, what are you, what? What? The kingdom, like, how can that possibly be, Jesus? We're still under the tyranny of Rome. Injustice and oppression are the norm. What do you mean the kingdom has arrived? And for us today, it's like, well, how could the kingdom of God have arrived on earth 2,000 years ago? What about all the wars? What about all the different forms of genocide? What about all the oppression and injustice? What about slavery and and sex trafficking? What about all the disease and loss and death? The kingdom of God has arrived? And the answer that Jesus gave to that tension and the New Testament writers after him was basically threefold. Okay, first is this. The kingdom is here, but it's also coming. Or in the language of theologians, it's, it's now and not yet. Sometimes Jesus would talk about the kingdom as if it was a present reality. Like he's like, it's here. And other times he talked about it as if it was a future reality. It's, it's yet to come upon his return. And so you go, well, which is it? It's both. The idea is that Jesus has inaugurated something. He has started something, but it is far from completion. Much, much more is coming. Human history is moving towards something that isn't fully here. Okay, second, the kingdom of Jesus is utterly unlike the kingdoms of this world. Jesus wasn't anything like a typical king. He wasn't born in a palace to royalty. He was born in a stable to peasants. He didn't lead an army. He taught enemy love. He didn't defeat his enemies. He died for them. And in his parables, Jesus mostly taught about the nature of the kingdom of God. Like you go read his parables. They're almost all directly about the kingdom of God. His parables are intended to just like explode our minds. I mean, like one time he just said flat out plainly, he just said, it's a kingdom where the last are first and the first are last. It's a kingdom where everything gets turned upside down. It's a kingdom where our assumptions about how the world works are flipped on their head, where our assumptions about what will lead to the good life are reversed. 
And yet at the same time, somehow our deepest desires begin to find satisfaction. It's a kingdom where the powerful serve the weak. It's a kingdom where the wealthy give to the poor, where the addicted are set free and the lonely are placed in families. It's a kingdom where weapons of war are turned into farming tools. A kingdom where love is the ultimate value and most important reality. As king, Jesus doesn't look anything like other kings. He doesn't look like Pharaoh. He doesn't look like Caesar. He doesn't, feel, he doesn't look like President Trump or President Biden. Don't get... He doesn't look like anybody. He doesn't look like anybody else. He doesn't look like you just fill in the blank. And the kingdom doesn't look anything like the Roman Empire or the British Empire or the United States of America. Or again, you fill in the blank. The kingdom of Jesus is utterly unlike the kingdoms of this world. And yet, the claim that all four gospel writers make is that in Jesus, this upside-down kingdom has in a way already arrived, and even more provocatively, that somehow on the cross, God himself became king of the world. That on the cross, the king drew all the sin and death of the world onto himself and died for the very people who rebelled against his reign and rule, not in vengeance, but in love. And somehow, that has freed us from the grip of Satan, sin, and death. The gospel writers insist that on the cross, a revolution began that was the turning point in human history. And as much as our secular culture would, would have, love to have you believe that the turning point in history was like the Enlightenment or the invention of modern science or the Internet or Wikipedia, all four gospel writers insist that somehow the turning point came through a Jewish carpenter on a cross, a king unlike any other, a king who came to inaugurate a revolution of love. And that just leads me to one more reason the world still looks the way that it does. The kingdom of God grows and expands, not through coercive force, but through suffering love. The, the revolution of Jesus' kingdom looks nothing like the American Revolution or the French Revolution or the Red Revolution. It is a revolution of love. And you guys, love takes a lot longer to win people over than force. But it works so much better in the end. Through apprenticeship to Jesus, we can, we can somehow learn to live in the kingdom of God and we can be formed into people of the deepest kind of love. And this is available to any and all who repent and believe. Now what in the world does that phrase mean? Well, I, you know, a lot of people, and I, for me, I used to kind of think of it as like, well, yeah, stop sinning and agree in your mind that Jesus is God. Like, repent and believe. But, but the word repent literally means like a change of mind or a change of worldview or a change of, of values. So I, I really like the way author and pastor John Mark Comer translates that phrase. To repent and believe is to, in his words, Rethink everything you think you know about who God is, who you are, 
and what the good life you crave actually is. And put your trust and confidence in me, Jesus, to heal you, save you, free you, and lead you to the life that you ache for. The, the good news, the euangelion, the gospel, is that a king has arrived. The king has arrived. And he has inaugurated something more beautiful than we can imagine. It is happening right now, and it is happening all around us. And in his unconditional grace and unfathomable love, he is inviting any of us who will to participate with him in it. To close, I, I just want to read you guys the words of N.T. Wright. I just want to read his words over you, just kind of speak them over you. Um, for those of you that know, N.T. Wright is a professor at Oxford, brilliant Christian thinker and writer, and speaker. Um, but let me read his words about the gospel, his, his picture of the gospel over you. It says, The good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. The ancient hopes have indeed been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. That ancient sickness that had crippled the whole world and humans with it has been cured at last so that new life can rise up in its place. Life has come to life and is pouring out like a mighty river into the world in the form of a new power, the power of love. The good news was and is that all this has happened in and through Jesus, that one day, and it will happen, that one day, and it will happen completely and utterly to all creation, and that we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in that transformation here and now. This is the Christian gospel. And then you kind of hear his Britishness. He says, do not allow yourselves to be fobbed off with anything less. Father in heaven, You are up to something extraordinary in this world. And you're inviting us to participate in it with you and then to be your messengers and to share the good news with the people that we love most. And as we think and talk about what does it look like to share the good news in a way that is loving and respectful and kind and, and leaves room for their personhood, God, I just pray that you would, you would fill us with a, a passion for your kingdom and, and as participants in it and a passion for those around us that we love so much and that you love even more. God, would you, would you do a work in us and would you fill us with your spirit and with power? Amen.